0: This morning we're in the Word, though, right? As part of our worship of the Lord, and I'll invite you to take your Bible and join me in the epistle of 1 John, which is almost near the very end of your Bible. Uh, If you need a Bible today, just raise your hand right where you are, and we'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word that we keep in the back just for that purpose, because after all, we are Idlewild Bible Bible Church. Church, right? So 1 John, and if you'll reach into your bulletin and grab this little outline that will be of some help, I think, uh, along the way. So, so get that in hand as well. And, and as you take a quick glance at that little note page, you will know almost immediately that we are stepping off into a, a brand new study series this morning. As summer begins to draw to a close and as we head into the fall, we are going to invite the Holy Spirit to take us on an amazing journey into an incredible little five-chapter book of the Bible, the Epistle of 1 John. As you see there on your note page, the title of this new series is Being Real Christians in an Unreal World. And that gives us kind of an idea right away of the general direction that this series is going to be taking us. Being real Christians in an unreal world. One of the common critiques leveled at present-day Christianity and at Professing Christians is that Christianity is a religion full of hypocritical people. Have you ever heard that criticism? Yes, you laugh because you know that's true. You attempt to share your faith with a non-Christian, and one of their first lines of defense for rejecting your message will be, well, no, no, your faith isn't for me. I know too many Christians. And I don't see much difference between them and the way I and my non-Christian friends live. We go, ouch, that hurts. I was reading an article the other day, and a candidly honest non-Christian said in this article, I can't tell what professing Christians believe because they don't seem much different than other people I know who make no-faith claims. And we go, ouch. That hurts. And, brothers and sisters, the sad truth is those non-Christians are right. The Barner Research Group, you may even know that name. Some of you have crossed paths with that name. The Barner Research Group is a Christian polling and social research organization in the United States that has delved extensively into the arena of faith and lifestyle, Christian and non-Christian, christian And the numbers don't lie. Barna compares the attitudes and the behaviors of Christians with non-Christians in a variety of arenas. Everything from divorce rates to prescription drugs taken for depression, sexual involvement within and outside of marriage, financial management, indebtedness, bankruptcy, charitable giving practices, pornography, use of Internet porn, movie-going habits, TV viewing practices, music choices, and a host of other arenas, even asking the question, do you play the lottery? And when Barna crunches the numbers, here is his cryptic summary statement in a book that he wrote in which he explains all of these things. We think and behave no differently from anyone else. The numbers don't lie. In another of their research projects, they discovered that 84% of young non-Christians say they know a Christian personally, yet only 15% of these non-Christians were able to say that the lifestyle of those believers that they knew was noticeably different in a good way, in a good way. A secular magazine that got a hold of Barna's results had this to say, "...the numbers show that Christians are no better off than unbelievers." At least one born-again sociologist, referring to Barna, is honest enough to admit it. Or, did we know this already? And we go, ouch, that hurts. Brothers and sisters, this should grieve us. This should break our hearts. Yes, this truth, these realities... It's a justified indictment against the prevailing Christian landscape in America, in our culture, of which we are all a part. We collectively, we collectively, no matter what we might think about ourselves here in this little space, we collectively don't look or act markedly different from those without Jesus, causing our claim that Jesus is the difference maker in this life and in the life to come to fall on deaf ears. Being real Christians in, a, in an unreal world, that sounds like a topic worthy of our time, don't you think? Making the letter of First John worth our time as well, because that in a nutshell is what this book is all about. Being Jesus followers who are the real deal in an unreal world. Believing in and living for Jesus so conspicuously, so consistently, so authentically that those Christians can't be ignored, they can't be blown off, they can't be marginalized, they can't be accused of being hypocritical. Christians who stand out in the crowd, who stand out in the culture, who stand out on this hill, distinctly different and authentically real for Jesus' sake. That's the gospel. That's the, that's the epistle of 1 John. In chapter 5, verse 13, if you were to flip your Bible over to that place, you're in First John. But in chapter 5, the last chapter near the very end of the book, John says, here's why I write this epistle. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We could say that another way. John would be saying, I write so that you will know with absolute certainty that you are the real deal. You're living out your Christian life in such an authentic way that you know and everybody else around you knows. Who's the Lord of your life? Who's the Savior of your soul? How kind of God to give us a book like this by which we can know whether we're fakes or true followers. On your note page, let's dive in then to First John and, and allow me to do that first by supplying just a little bit of background to this letter. First John was, after all, written in a real time-space context to a real group of people in the first century who were facing real issues. And so it will be helpful if we just put a little bit of meat on the bone before we even step into the opening verses. Unlike most other New Testament books, the author does not identify himself in this letter. That's really not a problem as we come to 1 John, though, unlike the book of Hebrews, another book that doesn't identify its author. Last Sunday morning, uh, toward the end of the second service, as we were heading out, Don De Palma pulls me aside, and he's leading a life group this year uh, in the book of Hebrews, and he comes up to me and says, So, Tim, uh, who wrote the book of Hebrews? well he knew i wouldn't know the answer to that because really no one knows the answer to that exactly but that's not true of the epistle of first john we know the apostle john wrote this letter one of jesus 12 handpicked disciples we know he's the author while we could unpack a, a boatload of scholastic evidence to make that point i'm really not sure we need to use our time in that way This is the same John who writes the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, that so beautifully depicts the life of the Lord Jesus. He's also the same John who writes the second epistle and the third epistle of John, and he's the author of, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he's the author of the book of Revelation. So he writes five of the New Testament's books, the language, the grammar, the style with which John writes these other books, is unmistakably evident as you open the epistle of 1 John. In fact, it's been noted by the scholars that 80% of the verses in 1 John reflect concepts that John first expresses in his gospel. So beyond all of that internal evidence, we also have the external evidence from the earliest writings of the church fathers, clear back into the, the second century, that John was indeed the author. So we've got strong support for all of that. By the time that John writes this epistle, he has had more than 80 birthdays. He's an old man. He's put on a lot of miles in those 80 plus years. He's outlived all of the other apostles. Even the apostle Paul has been dead now for 25 years when John writes this letter. But even though well-seasoned, he is still serving the Lord as he Leads as the pastor of the church at Ephesus, which is is in modern-day Turkey. This is the same place where Timothy also pastored this church. He writes his gospel, the Gospel of John, about 85 A.D., and this letter comes in 90 to 95 A.D., maybe 10 years after he writes the gospel, some 60 years after the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. Shortly after he writes 1 John, he will be banished to the island of Patmos by the exceedingly wicked and cruel Roman emperor whose name was Domitian. There he will receive this incredible vision of the end times that he'll put down on paper called the Book of Revelation. And then if tradition is correct, somehow he manages to get off that island of exile. He returns to Ephesus, and there he dies of natural causes. This little letter of five chapters and and 105 verses is seen as the clearest single presentation in the Bible of the marks, the proofs, the evidences that someone is truly, genuinely, authentically a believer in the Lord Jesus, a saved and heaven-bound child of God. This letter presents what real Christians believe and how they live out their lives in the world. So what exactly, we might ask, is it that would prompt the aged apostle to sit down and write this kind of a letter? Letters are written out of some kind of a context. Something pushes the thought. So what is it that pushed John to write this kind of a letter to challenge us to think about how we're living for Jesus? Are we real? Are we real? the real deal? Well, the closing years of John's life coincide with the emergence of an incredibly dangerous and divisive false teaching that was just beginning to infiltrate the church, divide the church and lead many away from Jesus. It will gain full traction in the second century, but the seeds of this false teaching have been sown and they are starting to take root. Paul, 30 years earlier had warned the Ephesian church, its elders had warned them to be on the lookout for such a development. In fact, here's what he writes. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says to the leaders of this church, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Brothers and sisters, that is precisely what is happening in Ephesus in this moment. And it's not just happening in Ephesus, it's happening all around in this, in this region. This new false teaching is known as Gnosticism. Have you ever heard that term? You've heard the term. You may not know exactly what it means, but you maybe have heard the term Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, and gnosis means knowledge. The promoters of this false teaching claimed to have been given a special insight from God into a higher or we would maybe even say a deeper realm of spiritual knowledge. And, of course, this is a mainstay of any false teacher. They claim to have something that nobody else has, right? And that's what the Gnostics said. We've got a knowledge that is super spiritual and nobody else has it but us. Gnostic heresy can get rather convoluted and and get a little bit fuzzy if you try to trace out its, its major tenets. But at its core, its teaching really moves simply in three different directions. And it is important that we know what those directions are because John will form his entire letter around confronting these three issues. First and most dangerous, Gnosticism taught that matter was inherently evil and the spirit was inherently good. And this dangerous dualism between matter and spirit led these false teachers to assert then that Jesus could not be both fully God, spirit, and fully human, matter, right? That's the, That was the heart of that. Jesus, as God, could not have taken on a physical body since since matter is evil. At best, he would have had a body that appeared to be human, but it really wasn't human. Brothers and sisters, you can see through this heresy, right? But more importantly, you can see the implications of such a heresy. This kind of a teaching tears at the very heart of the Incarnation, doesn't it? It denies the truth of the fully God, fully human Jesus as our Savior. And if it does that, it tears out the heart of salvation truth. If Jesus is not fully man as well as fully God, as He suffers and He dies on the cross for our sin, he cannot be, really cannot be, an acceptable substitutionary sacrifice for us, because he's not one of us. He can't stand in our place. We do not have one who can can rightly represent us before a holy God, because he's not fully human. He's he, he he's he's spirit, but he's not us. Well, that guts salvation, truth, doesn't it? It takes out of the picture the atonement, the payment of Jesus' life for your life, for my life. So this is the very first thing that John is going to address the moment that he opens his letter. He's going to address this issue. As I say, this is the most dangerous part of Gnosticism, but this dualistic view of evil matter and good spirit led those who embraced this teaching to carry it a step further and think, well... Uh, Because all sin is done in the material body, and the spirit is separated from the body, then sin has no real effect upon the spirit. And as a result of that, I can really live any way I want to. I can do anything I want to do. You could be as morally lax, as ethically free as you wanted to be, because sin really doesn't matter to you. It's part of the material, but your spirit, and it doesn't really matter to God. How convenient. How convenient for sinning us, right, for sinful us. I now have license to do whatever I want. But John will say in chapter 1, as early as verse 8, he will say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and what? The truth salvation truth is not in us. We're not the real deal if this is how we, how we think. See sin in your life the way these false teachers do and you absolutely for sure can know you're not a follower of Jesus because Jesus doesn't think like this. And, then, and, and, and those who love him don't live like that. And then speaking of love, that brings us to the third grave danger associated with this heretical teaching. Since these Gnostics viewed themselves as the spiritual elite with a special knowledge, uh, they, they scorned those who didn't have this knowledge, those who weren't enlightened. You didn't possess or you refused to appreciate their teaching. Well, they scorned you for that. What resulted was a, a proud, arrogant, unholy, loveless way of living. There was no room in the, the Gnostics' world for those who, who didn't believe as they believed. But such behavior doesn't mark those who have a higher knowledge. An unloving attitude towards other people betrays the fact that you really don't know God at all. Because God is what? He's love. And he expects those who love him to love others. Here's one quick example out of several we could pull out of this letter. Chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, John says this. If anyone says, I love God, the Gnostics said that, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his wife. Love his brother. This, the false teachers and those who followed the false teachers weren't loving. And John's going to pick that up. So these three issues, sound doctrine concerning the person and work of Jesus, moral right behavior, living out God's values in an an ungodly world, and and, and, and loving authentically both God and others, that's going to be kind of the recurring themes that John is going to put in front of us chapter after chapter in this little letter. And it, it, it is these recurring themes that has shaped the style of this particular little epistle. In fact, it's been described as being kind of like a musical symphony. You know, a symphony uh, typically has uh, just a, a few melody lines in it, and then everything is kind of built around those melody lines. And those melody lines in a symphony, they repeat over and over and over again. One will be played, then they'll move on to a second maybe even a third. Then they come back and they repeat that first melody line again. They put some other flourishes on it, but it's the same melody. And then, and you kind of just move through the symphony, symphony the, same, the same melody, but just presented a little bit differently. And that really is the epistle of 1 John. Were we to sit down and read 1 John in one sitting, which, by the way, church family, can I ask you to do that this week, every day? to sit down and read the epistle of John from front to back, five chapters. It will take you about 15 minutes to do this. But do it every day for the next seven days till we're together again, Lord willing, next week. And you begin to familiarize yourself with this letter. And what you'll realize is that you're hearing the same themes over and over and over again, like a symphony. This letter is nothing like the letters of Paul. Paul is very linear. He's very ordered. He, he's progressive in his, his thinking. He moves from point to point to point. Logically, you can just follow with him. John is way more circular. He'll address a point, leave it, come back to it again, and do that as many as four times in the course of the letter. And you'll discover that as you read it this week. So I would ask for that as a favor. It'll help you. It'll, it'll cause your mornings with us here to even be more enjoyable and helpful. One writer compares the epistle of 1 John to, to kind of having a fireside chat with the, the old pastor. That's helpful for, to me, for me as I think about approaching this book. He doesn't write a treatise on how to know if you're the real deal. He just sits down with you and he chats with you. And he meanders to the end that one, at the conclusion you're going to know through sound doctrine, through right moral behavior, and through authentic love – you're going to know if you are the real deal. What do I believe? How do I walk? How do I love? He's going to challenge us to move in these places. These will be the indicators, the validators of real salvation. It won't be some secret knowledge. It will be very tangible things that we can know. What I believe, how I walk, how I love. That will tell me everything I need to know about my place with God and my future with him and my impact upon my world right now. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know if you're the real deal. Excited about that thought with me? Yeah. Being real Christians in an unreal world. That was the longing of Pastor John's heart for his original readers. Most of them were professing Gentile Christians. They're, they're just like you and me, non-Jewish folks living in the first century, most of them in the city of Ephesus, but also Christians who lived in the churches and uh, the communities and went to the churches in the surrounding uh, towns of, of, of Ephesus as well. My guess is that every city that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 2, 3, that uh, we we read about Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. My guess is they all got copies of this letter. And then they would pass this letter on to other churches uh, around them. And so under the watchful care of the Holy Spirit, this letter has come down to us. Gentile Christians, mostly, in this room, half a world away from Asia Minor, 20 centuries removed, and yet there couldn't be a more relevant Topic, a relevant uh, focus for us to have than that which comes out of this amazing little letter. Am I the real deal in my time, in my culture, in my town? Am I really living the life Jesus calls me to live? And how do I know? So with that, we take up this epistle. We're going to read and look at the first four verses this morning. And if you'll just have your Bible in that place ready, let me read for us. And introduce you to 1 John. He writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Who is that? (laughs) That's Jesus, isn't it? The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete, may be full, fully realized. Well, there's quite a bit going on in those opening words. Both John's Gospel and his letter begin like this, with, Doctrine, right? And that's what you've just been exposed to, is some incredible doctrine. He doesn't start with, hello, how are you doing? He doesn't open the letter with, hi, this is John, you know, the beloved disciple. He begins with sound doctrine. What doctrine? Well, it's not the doctrine of the church. It's not the doctrine of sin. It's not... Not the doctrine about the end times. He heads straight for the doctrine that deals with the person of Jesus. Right? He goes straight there. No passing go. No collecting the $200. Straight to Jesus. Both his gospel and his letter begin this way. With the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And the reason is because the Gnostics are attacking the person of Jesus. And as well Jesus is the foundation upon which everything else in our faith rests. Yes. What we believe about Jesus is everything. The whole of the Christian faith, the truth about that each of us stands on this morning rests on the question, who is Jesus in my life? Your faith is all about that question and its answer. How you answer that says everything about you. Who is Jesus? In your life. Is he actually God? And is he God in flesh? Human flesh? If either of those is not true. Or even slightly altered. The entire foundational claim for your faith. Is undermined. And it will crumble. And so John starts right here. Again this is why these early Gnostic false teachers. Were were such a grave threat to the church. If their teaching could. Could could deceive the hearts of the people and and if god if the god jesus and the man jesus could somehow be separated from one another then the message that john and the other apostles was proclaiming would disintegrate and the church would be no more satan knows what he's doing so john begins with some sound doctrine about jesus and in these opening four verses he, he more or less gives us the highlights of the entire Jesus story. You know, uh, well, let me ask this. Have, have you been watching the Olympics? How many of you have been watching the Olympics with some regularity? If you have, then you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Because when the network presents the, the shows throughout the day and in the evening, they always begin the broadcast exactly the same way, with the highlights of the previous day's competition, right? That's exactly what they do. The pinnacle moments, the podium moments from the previous day's competition, they start with that. They're going to end with that as well. We know that there are hours and hours and hours, hundreds and hundreds of performances that are taking place, but we get to see those moments that actually define the games in the front end and at the back the one goal that made all the difference, the the, the final race, the single vault, the, the, the jump, the throw that won the game. That's what they're going to show us, just the highlights. We know there's a whole lot more, but we just get the highlights. Here, in these opening four verses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, John does exactly the very same thing with the story of Jesus. He gives us the highlights. Jesus, eternally pre-existing God, was made manifest. He was revealed in the incarnation when he put on human flesh. He's the message that we proclaim in this church age. And by him, sinners are restored to fellowship with God. And the result is an inexpressible joy. That's the first four verses, isn't it? Those are the highlights of the Jesus story. So who is Jesus? Well, John would answer, first of all, man, he is eternal God. And the way he answers that is with the opening words of this book. That which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. Who's that referring to? Well, it's referring to Jesus, of course. Those words probably sound vaguely familiar to you if you've ever read the Gospel of John. Because how does the Gospel of John begin? Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Does that sound a lot like the opening line here? That which was from the beginning? It sure does. And John's use of from the beginning, boy, that harkens all the way back to the very first words of the bible genesis chapter 1 verse 1 how does it read in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth that's what john wants us to recall with these with this opening phrase in the beginning god doesn't mean that god had a beginning simply means that there was god when time and space and matter began God was there. God was pre-existing. He was before the beginning of it all. Before creation, there was God. Before there was time, there was God. He was there in the beginning. Jesus is set alongside of God. And therefore, if Jesus is alongside of God at the beginning, what does that make Jesus? It makes Him God, doesn't it? He must be God. Eternal God. Before time, Jesus is God. He opens his letter with a declaration about the eternal nature of Jesus. He's deity. God and Jesus are are one. They're part of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We sang about that, didn't we, in that last song? You sang those words. I believe in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. John's asserting the deity of Jesus here. In the beginning, there is God, but there is also Jesus. But John has has hardly gotten started because he moves rapidly from the deity of Jesus into his incarnation with his next statement: "That which was from the beginning, and then what does it say? Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes." which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. This life, this, this God life was revealed. And John says, I've seen it. I've touched it. I have, I have looked upon it. I've heard it. How can we read these words and not think about John's testimony from his gospel? Again, from his opening chapter, verse 14. How does it read? These are words that you know. And the word became flesh, right? And did what? Lived among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What we are reading here, brothers and sisters, is a powerful Personal testimony, an eyewitness account. John is saying, I am an insider. I am an eyewitness to the person of Jesus. He's one of the hand-picked 12 disciples. He saw Jesus up close, lived with him for three plus years. On the night before the cross, you remember, this is the disciple who leans back and rests his head on Jesus' chest. This is John. After the resurrection, Jesus invites him to touch him and to realize that he's not a phantom, that he's not a ghost. It's Jesus risen from the dead. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my side. It's me. John is describing the relationship that he has with the man, Jesus. He heard. He saw. He ate with. He walked with. He lived with. He laughed with. He cried with. He touched God in human form. You know, when a crime is committed and the investigators are put on the case, what's the first thing they do? What do they do? Well, they go out and they talk to those who are what? The witnesses, if there are any, to the crime. They try to find out. And what do they ask? What did you see? Oh, what did you hear? Uh, Did you move anything? Did you touch anything at the crime scene? Right? You're a witness. You were there. What did you hear? What did you see? Well, John speaks of the man Jesus as a personal witness, not to solve a crime, but to counter those false teachers who are trying to separate Jesus from his incarnation. John says, not a chance. I was with him. I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. And again, this is so, so critical, brothers and sisters, because only a fully human Jesus can represent us before a a holy God. If he's not fully human and fully God, he can't stand in our place and represent us. The Gnostic false teachers were teaching a great dangerous heresy. And John's going to confront that. So in two verses, John is declared by personal testimony the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. Did you know that? Did you, did you know that, brothers and sisters? Yeah? Say yes. I, 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 that's, that's where he's going. I get it. Okay. All right. He is the God-man. I get it. And then if you flip your note page over, who is Jesus? Well, he's the heart of the message. He's the heart of the message, John's going to say. Verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we what? We proclaim also to you, Jesus is the heart of our message. Proclaiming began at Jesus' ascension, 40 days after the resurrection. Do you remember this? Jesus tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my what? You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my mouthpieces, my proclaimers in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and clear to what? The ends of the earth. You are going to proclaim the message about me. That's what Jesus said. And the book of Acts, as you know, goes on to present the beginning of this proclamation. But it's been going on ever since. For 20 centuries, it's been going on. In fact, it's what we're doing right now, isn't it? We are proclaiming the, 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 the center of the message, who is Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. Proclaiming what the apostles proclaimed. Proclaiming what the early church saints proclaimed. What missionaries have been proclaiming for all of these 2,000 plus years. And John is saying, the heart of the gospel message is Jesus. And that cannot, that must not ever, ever change. He is the God-man. Our Savior. Reminds me of the words of the Apostle Paul that we were studying back in the book of Galatians when we did that series together maybe a year ago. Paul will write these words. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? Accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Well, that's strong language. Paul's words would have captured the conviction, though, of John's own heart. Jesus, the God-man who who came, who lived sinlessly, died sacrificially, rose victoriously, reigns supremely, and is coming again most assuredly. That is the heart of the message. And And John wants to make sure his readers know that anyone who is the real deal believes those things. You believe them. And then without breaking stride, he says, Jesus is also our way to fellowship with God. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, up until verse 3, John is making some pretty lofty theological statements and points that could leave some readers feeling just a a little bit kind of out of step and and, and maybe uh, just wondering a little bit, wow, this is heavy stuff for me. Great stuff in the seminary classroom, but it's a little bit heavy for me. Someone could be feeling like that. But with verse 3, John says that Jesus provides something that every single person in the world, either openly or secretly, is longing for. They are longing to be with God. Either secretly or openly, they want to be with God. And, it, and equally important, they want God to want to be with them. That's the desire of every heart. And the reason every, I can say this with confidence is because the scriptures say that every single person in the world was given by God a desire for eternity. And that's where God is. Ecclesiastes 3, Romans chapter 1, a longing for fellowship with God. Many deny this longing. Some of them try to suppress this longing, even run from this longing, but fellowship with God. Every heart wants that. That word fellowship presents a very important New Testament concept. The word was used in the common language of John's day to describe partners in business. They shared the business together or two people who owned a a piece of property together they were in fellowship so the root word of this of this word fellowship koinonia it means common it means to share something in common it's a relationship word when applied to what john says here it's hugely profound john is saying when sinners share in common the person of jesus with god if god if jesus is the common thing that that, that, that God the Father and the sinners share, they have what? They have fellowship with one another. We have Jesus in common. And that's what John is saying. The life, the word of life, the eternal life, describe the spiritual experience of all sinners and what all sinners desperately want. Physical death is just a reminder... That spiritual death is coming unless someone changes that for us. We're dead. We're lost. We're empty. We're searching. We're broken. What do we want? We want to live. We want eternal life. We want fellowship with God. That's what our souls were made for. Jesus is the source of that life. And He's the way to have that fellowship with God. In fact, Jesus Himself said it best. On the night before he was crucified, John chapter 14, verse 6. Do you remember these words? John heard them with his own ears, and he wrote them down for us. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father, right? No one gets fellowship with my Father except through me. You want to be the real deal? Well, you're going to have to come through me, Jesus says. Now, this is a poor illustration, but I'm going to give it a try. Think about electricity for just a moment, and think about our local utility provider, which is Edison. Okay? What happens when a storm comes through Idlewild? It doesn't even have to be a big storm. It can be a very tiny storm. What often happens? The power goes out, Right? Or a tree crawls, falls across the power lines and the, and the power gets cut off. Suddenly everything on the hill is electrically dead. Nothing works and we feel cut off. Who do we call? We call Edison. We call Edison. Why? Because Edison is the only one that can supply the electricity that we need. If you have a generator, that's not part of my illustration. You just got to forget that, right? Okay? We're not talking about that. We call Edison because Edison is the one that can supply the electricity that we need. But for our homes and our lights to come alive again, they have to be connected to the source of the electricity. When we're connected to Edison, not only are we electrically alive again, but we are in constant electrical fellowship with Edison. I told you it was a weird weird illustration. But indirectly, church family, indirectly we are also in electrical fellowship with with everybody else who's connected to Edison, right? Yeah. And so John is saying something very similar in a spiritual sense. Jesus as God is the source of eternal life. Forgiveness of sin and eternal life and all fellowship with God is only going to come When we are connected to him by the person of Jesus Christ. And that's John's point here. We have fellowship with God because we believe in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that will have ultimate meaning for us. Everything ends in darkness and aloneness and separation unless we are connected to eternal life. God the Father through Jesus But John doesn't linger on that very long before he comes to one more thought as we wrap things up. Who is Jesus? Well, he is the ultimate joy for anyone who puts their faith in him and is in fellowship with the Father. He is the ultimate joy. Do you believe it today, brother, sister? Yeah? He writes in verse 4, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete may be fully satisfied, may be fully realized. True biblical Christianity, when it is understood, when Jesus is, is seen for who He is and believed for what He has done, that brings us an incredible, great joy. We don't always have feelings of happiness, do we, as Christians? There are some in this room right now who are, who are really hurting. They're not feeling happy today. However, you can not feel happy and you can also have what? Great joy. Great joy. Even in the pain, we sing about this. Even in the pain, there is joy because we know personally and in a saving way the God-man, the Word of life, the source of eternal life, and we are in fellowship with Jesus said it so well. John heard it with his own ears on the night before Jesus died. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus says, that my, what? my joy may be in you and that your joy may be filled up. Filled up. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are my joy. No matter what else happens in my life. John begins his fireside chat of a letter with a bold statement about who Jesus really is. Eternal God, incarnate Son, the heart of the true gospel message, the only means of fellowship with God, and the source of ultimate joy. That's a lot to pack in four sentences, isn't it? Four verses. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know. If you're the real deal, you're the real deal. If you believe these things, let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for your word today. Thank you for our time to be able to introduce this letter. And we just want to commit ourselves to its study going forward. I pray you would bless my friends as they read your word every day. Spend a little time with uh, 1 John. Pray that your spirit would begin to unlock its truths. Thank you. Thank you that you've given us a resource by which we can evaluate our own walk with you. In a a world where there's a lot that's not real, we want to be the real deal. We want to be men, women, young people who live out the true Jesus before a world that doesn't know him yet. We can only do that with you. Lord, if there be anybody in our room who has yet to settle the question of who you are, Lord Jesus, may you just make yourself so plain that with great joy they would embrace you in simple saving faith. Help us to help those people. Help us to help each other, Lord, to live real. We'll say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.